All right, good morning, New Life East. You can go ahead and take a seat after you've said hi to all of your family and friends and beautiful people. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you've joined us this summer. Um, man, Colin really coming out with a buzzkill that summer's almost over, isn't he? I'm telling you, now we've got a, now all they're going to be thinking about is how they have like two weeks until their kids go back to school and which I guess is a blessing. Thank you for shushing someone. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, hey, we're going to uh, open up the scriptures here in a minute. We're going to be in Psalm 130 this morning. I, one thing I want to give you guys just a, a bit of a heads up on. Um, many of you all know that our uh, worship pastor, Andrew Cantrell, he transitioned off staff um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's been great to see them still hanging out, being a part of what's going on here. Um, but that means that we are obviously looking for and attempting to hire a new worship pastor. Um, what that means for you all is that over the next couple of weeks, um, over the, actually over the, for the next however long until we find the right person. It could be weeks, it could be months, who knows. Um, but what that means is there are going to be friends of ours showing up to lead worship. Some of them are going to be people who are just connected to the New Life family, connected to, our, to myself or to Colin or to Pastor Andrew that we're inviting to just come and hang out with us on a weekend. But there are also going to be people who are showing up who are like actually interviewing, like trying to get a job here at New Life East. And here's the reality. You aren't going to know the difference between those people when they show up. You aren't going to know if when you walk in on a Sunday, if who you're looking at is trying to like be here permanently and you have to become friends with them at some point, or if they're just hanging out. Regardless, I just want to ask for two things from you. One, patience and grace as we walk through this process and as we try to identify the right person to be with us. And two, that you would continue to show up and not be completely thrown off by whoever is up here leading worship, and you would just continue to press in, lean in, invite the Spirit to be a part of worship here. Sound good? Okay, that means if I show up one day and am singing and leading worship, you're just gonna pretend, I'm not gonna do it, but you're just gonna pretend like everything is normal. Sound good? Okay, my people, you guys are great. All right, uh, Psalm 130. We have been walking through the Psalms of Ascent this chunk of scripture from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And uh, we come now to Psalm 130. Now, I wanna give you a heads up here. Um, there are moments as someone who preaches where you're prepping for the weekend and you read a scripture, you begin to study it, and you begin to have the faces and the stories of your church just pop into your head, right? One of the great gifts of being a pastor is that we get to have conversations with people as they're going through the best moments in their life, but also as they're going through some of the most difficult moments in their lives. And uh, what many of you know, because you know this to be true about yourselves, is that over the last few weeks, Pastor Colin and I have had countless conversations with people who are going through really challenging stretches of life, because that's what life delivers to you. Right? These psalms were sung by pilgrims as they were on their way to the city of Jerusalem. And for them, that's generically a celebration. But you have to imagine, as happens with any journey in life, is that while you're on your way, eventually things go not as planned. All of a sudden, you had this expectation that you would get there in two days, and it's now taken four days because it has just presented more problems, more issues than what's going on. So today, what I want to do is speak very pastorally to you guys as our church. Um, I'm not up here to preach like a super fire message that, that has a bunch of like tweetable quotes or whatever. I'm not interested in doing that. 
I'm interested in pastoring you for the next 30 minutes. And um, what I recognize is that for some of you, that's going to feel awkward because what I'm going to give to you is super practical. I'm not throwing these lofty ideas out that you now get to chew on and wrestle with and then come back and we just do it all over again. But I want to be really practical with you. So if you have a Bible, Psalm 130, the psalmist begins the psalm this way. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full of redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, let's pray. God, as we read this psalm, and many of us reflect on the state of our lives where we've been, where we're going, we recognize that um, we're on holy ground. To stand on holy ground is to recognize that we are in a place where God is with us. And that means that you have something to say to us. You have something for us this morning. And so God, we open up our lives, we open up our eyes, we open up our ears, we open up our souls to hear from you. that you would be the God who is in fact close, who sends his spirit with us, who is in fact a comforter, but you are also a God who challenges us, who convicts us, who calls out the places in our lives where things have gone sideways and gone awry. So God, we open up our lives to you this morning, that you would be the kind of God who cares about us and makes that known to us, that you care about how we are doing. God, I ask personally that you would help me speak as a pastor to our people today, not as a preacher. That the holy ground that we walk on is holy ground that all of us have stood on from time to time, and that requires compassion, it requires delicacy. So would you fill me with that? We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. You know, um, I often think about... Um, what like you as a congregation member wishes your pastor would say every once in a while? Like what you wish someone would just acknowledge while they stand on a stage. And something I wanna acknowledge for you, um, guys, life is hard. It's hard. I don't mean that in like a cliche way. I mean that in a very serious way. Life is hard. Like what we know to be true is that for you to wake up in the morning and take a big deep breath and put your feet on the ground is just in and of itself a miracle. Like you are alive, there's, there's breath in your lungs and it's been put there somehow and, and you're just, you existing is miraculous. But life is hard. Like life is hard simply because you wake up every day and there are a million things going on around you. Uh, you, you have a career 
or even a career that you've retired from, but you, you have one. It became a part of who you were. You, you have your career, your work, your job. You have the, the finances that are hopefully produced by that work or that job or the lack of finances that are produced by that job. You have your career, you have your finances. You have not just those things, but you have your like mental health. You have your physical health. You have your spiritual well-being, the way you're just trying to like exist and not just exist, but you're trying to like thrive and hopefully make it through the day in a really good and healthy manner. You have all these things. You have the diet that you're trying to be on. So you're trying to eat healthy. You're concerned about every piece of food that comes in and out of your mouth. Some of you less concerned. I'm right there with you. It's all good. You have your home that you live in. You're trying to make sure that it's in tip-top shape. You have all these things that are going on. And this is just on a normal day when everything is going right. And then, and then there are these, um, what do we want to call them? These uh, other living beings, we call them people, that we interact with in our everyday life. Right? You wake up in the morning and next to you is your spouse, whom you love, that you're concerned about their well-being, their emotions, their feelings, what's going on in their life. And then you, you walk down the hallway and um, there are these other smaller human beings, um, we call them children, whom you also love, that you're trying to just like make sure they get through the day because they feel so very fragile. Their emotions are delicate. and any given moment, they can go from smiling to running through your kitchen with a steak knife, that's a real thing. My two-year-old daughter is a trip, y'all. Another story for another time. Then you go to your job. And on the way to your job, you recognize that there are a bunch of people in cars, other people that you have to be concerned about how they're doing things. Then you get to that job and you have a boss and you have coworkers and you have all these other people that you're not just concerned enough about your own life and your own well-being. But you're also thinking about them and what is going on in their life. And then you have this room that we sit in right now called church. And uh, I recognize that as a pastor, we ask things of you. We ask you to show up and participate. We ask you to give. We ask you to volunteer. We ask you to pray and be concerned about the people that are next to you. We, there's a whole other realm of things for you to be concerned about. And, and there's sickness and there's well-being and there's all sorts of stuff that we could go on and list, not including that many of you have aspirations and dreams about not what is even going on in your life right now, but what, what might someday maybe possibly go on in your life. You have all these things going on. Listen, uh, New Life East, life is hard. Some of you have been waiting for someone to just look you in the eyes and tell you that. Life is hard. You got a lot going on. And that doesn't even account for the moments where on the journey of life, all of a sudden, one of those number of things completely breaks down. All of a sudden, your mental health is not as good as you wish it was, and you find yourself needing a therapist, needing medicine, needing all sorts of things just to sort of cope and get through the day. You find that the loss of a loved one has all of a sudden come out of nowhere and your world has been turned upside down. Your relationship with your kids, maybe even just your kids' well-being, has all of a sudden just, it feels like it has just collapsed overnight and you have no idea how it's happened, you have no idea 
where it's come from. The career that you had chosen, that you had walked on for 15, 20 years, all of a sudden is just not there anymore. And you don't know what to do. Life is hard enough not to count the moments where things go completely sideways. We have a word for this event in the English language. It's a crisis. It's a moment where any number of those things happen. Where all of a sudden the life that you thought you had, the path you were walking down is all of a sudden completely gone awry. Maybe for some of you that hasn't happened in like the physical space, but it's actually happened with faith. This thing that you grew up believing and holding so dearly, all of a sudden you're looking at it and it feels like the fabric of it is being torn to pieces. Listen, all of us have moments in life where we encounter a crisis. What I know to be true is that there are people, there are families, individuals sitting in this room right now who you are in the middle, smack dab in the middle of a crisis. For some of you, you aren't in it right now. You went through it a few years ago, but it still feels fresh. The wound still feels wide open. And for others of you, unfortunate hint for you today, you're going to encounter one at some point. And you know, one of the things that I find really challenging as a pastor is watching people who have no idea what to do when this moment arises, because it's completely disorienting. It throws us for a loop. Everything we thought we knew feels like it has gone out the window. Everything we held dear and close all of a sudden feels like it wants nothing to do with us anymore. So friends, um, I'm never one to preach and be like, here are these three things. And if you do these three things, your life's going to be better. But as I read this psalm and I thought about the stories and the things that are unfolding in the life of our church, what I want to talk to you today, I want to talk to you today about how to survive a crisis and why I think Psalm 130 gives us a really clear picture of how to walk through it. The first thing that I recognize in Psalm 130 about how we survive a crisis this is going to be hyper-practical. You must acknowledge where you are. I can't tell you personally how many times I talk with people whose lives are falling apart, and yet they will sit across from me attempting to pretend that their life is completely fine. Think about what the psalmist does, the way that he starts the psalm. What's the very first thing he says? He says, out of the what? Depths. I cry to you, Lord. The psalmist is keenly aware of where he is. His life has fallen to pieces and he is in the depths. Now, anytime the word depths shows up in the scriptures, it's almost always sort of a callback, like a hyperlink back to when God created the world. We know that the world was dark, formless, empty, void of any form. And the spirit of God hovers over the depths. It hovers over the waters. It's a picture of what God is doing is taking all the chaos, all the lack of form in the world, and he is coming and putting it together and creating something beautiful out of it. Anytime that word depths is used in the scripture, it's meant to draw the image for us of a world in which there is absolute chaos. Nothing looks like it makes any sense. The world is completely undone. The real way to think about it is it is the world when God's finger feels like it is not touching it at all. Completely chaotic, completely broken down. And the psalmist just calls it out. He says, God, I'm in the depths. He simply looks at what has happened to him and he is honest about it. I am in the pit. 
I am as low as it can be. He is willing to acknowledge exactly where he finds himself. He's willing to be honest. He's willing to be clear-hearted. He's willing to be open-eyed about where he is. Can I tell you why this is important? If you are going through crisis in your life and you refuse to acknowledge it for what it is, you can actually make no headway in it. You're going to spend all your time trying to pretend that everything is fine. You know what this psalmist would do on a Sunday if he was going through a crisis? He wouldn't do what most of us do, which is make sure the kids look perfect and our spouse looks perfect and we look perfect and show up and smile and be like, aren't we perfect? You know what this psalmist would do? When the pastor stands on stage and says, we have altar ministers who are available to pray with you and talk with you if you have anything going on, they would come forward and talk with them and say, I'm in the middle of it. I need somebody to pray with me. It's the rea- You've heard the, the long saying that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You've heard this before? It's the idea that if you acknowledge what is actually in front of you, then you can address it. But if you pretend that it's something that it's not, well, you can't. Um, this summer, I have attempted to uh, take up golfing quite frequently. And uh, it's one of those things where I think I like it more than it likes me. There's not a lot of love going back and forth between me and golf, but I really find it enjoying being outside for a good stretch of time and, you know, whatever. If any of any, just show of hands, any of you golfers in the room? Yeah, okay, a few of you. Um, any of you good golfers in the room? Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Nobody. It, what, what you guys do, you don't need to be a golfer to know this. There's different, you got a bag. There's all sorts of different clubs in a bag, right? And all those clubs are meant to hit different kinds of shots. They're situational. Golf is almost purely a situational sport. You find yourself in different spots on the green, on the fairway, in the rough, and you're supposed to use a different kind of club. You also like, you position your feet differently, your stance gets wider, it gets more narrow, you use more hips, less hips, you don't need to think about me using my hips. There's all sorts of different situational things that present themselves. If I all of a sudden got on the putting green with the largest club in my bag, a driver, and I attempted to hit it, how well do you think that goes? Not great. If I find myself in a sand trap, which is frequent, and I attempt to putt out of a sand trap, those of you who play golf, tell me, how well does that go? Not well. If we are unwilling to acknowledge the situations we find ourselves in, we will never make headway in them. We'll never move forward. You're going to be swinging at a golf club in a pit of sand with a putter, And not only do you look ridiculous, and no one wants to be around you, but it makes it really hard for God to intervene when you yourself won't even be honest about what's going on. Which leads to the second thing that I think we see about how to deal with a crisis as it unfolds in our lives. You call upon the Lord. Now, this should be a no-brainer for some of you, but look at what the psalmist does. Out of the depths, he cries to the Lord. He says, Lord... Hear my voice. God, would you just hear me? Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So the psalmist, he identifies the position he's in. He is in the midst of utter chaos. He is honest about it. Then he takes it to the Lord and says, God, would you please hear? Would you speak? Would you be close to what is going on in my life? What I've noticed though, even with like the best 
Christian people in the world is this doesn't come for a while when you're in the middle of crisis. Because the beginning of a crisis doesn't feel like rock bottom. But after you've dealt with it for six months, all of a sudden, then you're like, you know what I need to do? I should ask that God guy what's going on. He might have something. But what most of us do is we take as much time as we can to try to manipulate the situation, to try to coerce it into being fixed, to try to like work our way out of it, to do the American thing, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just march on forward. But what the psalmist does, as soon as he identifies where he is, he talks to the only God who can have control over what is going on at all. And you know what you discover if you begin to call upon the Lord as soon as a crisis hits? Is that he is the only one who could save you in the first place. He is the only God who could step into space and time and do anything to help you out. The people of God, long standing, had this idea built into their head. They knew when they found themselves in Egypt, in slavery, it wasn't worth crying out to Pharaoh because he wasn't listening, but you know who was? The God of the universe was willing to hear them. What you discover when you call upon the Lord is that our God is the kind of God who is willing to step into space and time and be the one who resolves it. I think about when my, my family and I, we, when we lived in Texas and we knew that um, our time at the church that we were part of, we knew it was coming to an end. We knew for us, we knew it was time to start thinking about transitioning out. And um, some of you know bits and pieces of the story and uh, we were potentially gonna go plant a church. That was the direction that we were headed. And um, my church uh, at the time, when they found out that that was the direction we were headed, um, they read that as competition, not as kingdom. And we don't have time to talk about how wrong that is. That's a different sermon for another time. But I remember my wife is six months pregnant. We're realizing something has to change. We know that the people we work for and work with feel really tense about what is going on. And one of my uh, executive pastors came to me and he said, hey, uh, when, do, when does your wife give birth? I said, uh, our baby's due on July 2nd. And he said, okay, well, on July 3rd, you're done. You're done. And I went, is there room for a conversation? He was like, no, there's not. July 3rd, you're done. I remember I went home, I told my wife, and the very next thing that I did, because I realized there was nothing I could do. I, didn't, I couldn't coerce the situation. I couldn't control it. I couldn't like turn it around by like having five more meetings. It couldn't happen. I remember sitting in my office at home and I just, I looked up and I said, okay, God, you're gonna have to come get me. I can't rescue myself here. I can't save myself out of what is about to happen. I can't, I can't figure out what to do. You're gonna have to come and get me. My wife's about to have a baby. She's six months pregnant. I'm not gonna have an income. God, I don't, I don't know what to do. You're gonna have to come and do something. When you begin to call upon the Lord early on in a crisis, it reorients your life so that you recognize God is ultimately the one who does the rescuing in your life. No one else. You can't manipulate your way around it. You can't coerce people into something. It's the only thing that God can do is to step in and rescue you. Now, something happens when we're in the midst of crisis, and I, I hear this all the time, I do this, is what begins to happen is we begin to see the ways in which everyone outside of us has contributed to the crisis. We begin to read those Psalms where David is going, God, would you, would you do something to my enemies? And we're pretty quick to be like, yeah, we see all those people who have caused this to unfold in my life. 
The unfortunate thing about crisis when it arises is that it's not always caused by someone else. Oftentimes, it's caused by us. It's caused by our own sin, our own brokenness, our own foolishness. And the psalmist in Psalm 130 recognizes this as well. So the third thing I want to tell you today, if you find yourself in the midst of a crisis, you confess and repent of any of the ways that you yourself have contributed to the crisis. You have those moments where you step back and go, you know what? I've contributed to this. Think about what the psalmist says here in verse 3. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Psalm 130 has longstanding been a psalm that when people are in the midst of confession, it's a psalm that they say, much like Psalm 51. It's a psalm that helps us recognize that we are often our own worst enemies, that we are the great culprits of the crisis that unfold in our lives. I can think about people over my 10, 11 years of helping pastor people that'll come to me and be like, my marriage is falling apart and I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea why it's happening. And you talk longer and all of a sudden you realize in the worst cases, well, you had an affair, so now your spouse doesn't trust you. I can't imagine why there's a crisis going on. You were mean and abusive and rude to this person and you don't understand why your life is falling apart. I can think of people who have, who have talked to me about financial crisis in their life. Oh, they, they go, oh my gosh, I just, I don't know what's happening. I'm like, well, you go to Chick-fil-A every day. I know what's happening. It may be blessed, holy, and ordained chicken, but that does not change the cost of it. I hear stories all the time of people who go, my life is completely falling apart and I have no idea why. And if they take a second and all of a sudden look internally, they recognize that it is not some force outside of them that has caused this. It's themselves. I wonder how many of us have ever been in that spot where we've recognized that our life is slowly crumbling and we would love to have someone else to blame. But what the psalmist helps us reconcile with is that often the crises that unfold in our lives are on no one's shoulders, on no one's hands, but ours. But what is fascinating about the way the psalmist words this is it's not meant to cause guilt and shame to fall upon you. It's actually supposed to force you to look at the God of the universe in a more clear way and recognize the kind of God that he is. The psalmist says, if we were to just start keeping track of sins, no one could stand before God. And yet, but with you, God, there's what? Forgiveness. Which means that even even if you sit in this room and your life feels like it's falling apart, and if you're honest for one moment, it's your fault. Do you know what God doesn't do? Is he doesn't go, I hope you learn from it. He doesn't go, until you have paid the debt for all of these things you have gotten wrong, your life is going to continue to be like this. What the psalmist seems to present is that our God is the kind of God that once we acknowledge where we've been and we start talking to him and we somehow discover that we are in fact wrong, he goes, 
you're forgiven. Peace be with you. What a beautiful thing that our God is like that. That even if you have botched it royally, what he does is go, you're forgiven, go in peace. That is the ultimate picture of freedom, friends. Because what crisis often does is make you feel completely trapped and stuck and like there is no hope. There's no way out of it. There's no way to put your marriage back together. There's no way for your finances to be reconciled. There's no way for this poor career decision you made that has now had repercussions. There's no way you'll ever figure things out again. And what God says is, you're forgiven. Go in peace. If you've messed up royally, you're forgiven. Go in peace. That is the kind of God that we have, that even in the midst of crisis, what God is interested in doing is not getting us to solve it. He's interested in us seeing him, seeing our situations as clear as possible, which leads me to the very last thing. And this is gonna drive some of you nuts. You actively wait on the Lord. The psalmist says these words. He says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Can I give you a little trick to reading your Bible? Anytime something shows up twice, it means it's really important. He says, I'm going to wait. Everything has fallen apart. I'm aware of that. I have had a part to play in the way this has fallen apart. I'm aware of that. God, I am bringing everything before you as it unfolds, as it breaks down even more, as healing happens. I'm bringing it all. I'm talking to you. I'm calling upon the Lord. And then the invitation of the psalmist is that you wait upon him. But the word watchman in the scriptures brings a new sort of connotation to what it means to wait. Most of us in America, when we hear wait, we think do nothing. We think waiting is I sit, I sit on my hands, I just, I just kind of am just anticipating God to show up and do something spectacular, and we're just sitting there just watching, hoping something unfolds. Watchmen in the world of God's people were not people who sat around and did nothing. They were quite active people. They were, when you think about a city in the ancient Middle East, they were the people who marched around the city, standing on the high places, watching to make sure that no enemies were coming against their people. They were the ones who, when the military would go out, they would watch to make sure the path was clear. They're the people who would watch over vineyards to make sure no thieves came by to steal anything. They were the ones who watched to make sure that no animals were coming in to kill plants and things that were vital to the well-being of people. To be a watchman in the scriptures is not to be someone who sits around and does nothing. The waiting that is talked about in Psalm 130 is not passive. It's active. That means that what you are doing is keeping in your mind that God is in fact the only one who saves and rescues and redeems, but you get to participate with him. You get to join in with him. Good example of this. If you recognize that your finances are falling apart 
and it's because of your spending choices. It doesn't mean you keep spending and wait for God to show up. Wisdom would say, you make a budget, you change your spending habits, you start saving. You still have a part to play in the way in which God steps into your life in the midst of a crisis. If you feel like your marriage is falling apart, the response to it is not to just sit down and go, well, hopefully God will make them come around. If you've been wrong, you apologize. If you need help, you go to counseling, you talk to a pastor, you have conversations with the person that you've married, been married to and that you love. Actively waiting means you step in and begin to engage with what God is doing in the world. And here is what is beautiful about our God is he actually promises us that if we walk through things like this, that what is coming on the other side is actually good. What are the watchmen waiting for? They're waiting for the sun to come up. They're marching around all night, observing, making sure that everything is okay, but they know in the back of their mind, they know deep within their soul that something good is coming. They know that the dawn is coming. They know that the sun will come up, that they will once again be standing in the light. So friends, I don't know where some of you find yourselves. If you feel like you are standing in the pitch black of night, you hear that idea of the depths of the world and you go, that's where I feel like I am. When you join with God, when you get honest about where you're at, when you begin to acknowledge the place you found yourself, you take ownership of those things, you lift it up to the Lord and you actively wait for him. What he promises is that on the other side of it, hope is coming. There are all sorts of moments in the scriptures where God's people find themselves in those spots. One of them, the prophet Isaiah is, is called, is invited to challenge God's people. They've become people of injustice. Their world is broken down. They've been captured by, by opposing uh, countries and, and superpowers. They have had their whole world tipped upside down. They are in full on crisis. And Isaiah paints a picture for them of what God is going to do. He says this, this is Isaiah speaking. He says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God, which is how many of us feel when our lives fall apart. And Isaiah says this, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But here's the promise, friends. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who bring the honest reality of their, their lives to the Lord will be renewed in their strength. Those who come with repentance and a contrite heart will be renewed in their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, would you stand where you are? This is the promise that the Lord gives to you. That even in the midst of what feels like your life falling to pieces, If you come to him, he will not let you grow weary. 
he will not let it fall apart. In fact, he says the opposite will happen. You'll soar on wings like eagles. He won't just come to you in the dirt and be like, well, we're gonna stay here. It says he's gonna elevate what is going on. There's a hope, there's a future. And we're reminded of that promise as we come to the table that God would see us, humanity, in a place of potentially eternal crisis. And he would step in as Jesus himself, get into the dirt with us, get into the mess with us. That Jesus on the night he was betrayed would take bread, he would break it and say, this is my body, which is being broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? That same night he would take the cup that says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? Friends, what we're reminded of when we come to the table is that our God is a God who when our lives are being torn apart at the seams, does not hide from us. He's actually quite interested in giving you a future that is beyond what you can imagine. I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward this morning. I also wanna invite our altar ministry team to make, take a space along the front here. What I recognize is when we begin to talk about things like this is that it opens us up. And what many of us are tempted to do is feel the weight of what is going on in our lives and then just go back to our seat run as fast as we can to the car and head home and keep holding the weight of this. But I think the invitation to Psalm 130 is to be the kind of people who acknowledge where we're at and ask for help when we need it. So these people are up front. They would love to pray with you, to talk with you about what is going on in your life, what is unfolding. There's no shame in it. There's no guilt in it. There's only honesty and goodness that can come from it. Friends, for communion, you'll come down these two center aisles You'll grab a gluten-free cracker that represents the broken body of Christ. You'll take it and you'll dip it into the cup that represents the shed blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Would you come forward to receive communion?